MFM Podcasts. Brought to you with Carrickmacross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Carrickmacross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Carrickmacross or carrickmacrosscu.ie. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, the Renault Selection Used Car event, is now on. If you want to save thousands, check out this month's offers, including low APR finance, two years warranty and roadside assistance. Terms and conditions apply. You're very welcome to Tuesday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Lots of chat, as usual, over the next couple of hours. But beginning today, let me take you back. During the Troubles, Mid-Ulster Catholics were terrorised by an infamous Glenan gang, a conglomerate of the UVF, OUC and UDR members who are believed to have been responsible for the murder of more than 120 innocent civilians between 1972 and 1978. One of the atrocities involved the O'Dowd family, who had three of their family murdered on the 4th of January 1976. A new documentary produced by award-winning filmmaker Sean Murray and called Unquiet Graves will show in the Solstice Arts Centre in Navin this Friday at half past seven and ahead of its screening I'm joined by Sean and Barney O'Dowd who survived that shooting in 76. You're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Sean, if I could start with yourself. Those were very dark days 40 years ago and I remember them well looking from a distance down south. Um, People would say, why not let sleeping dogs lie? That's a, 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 a very important statement, and it's one that uh, that, that creates the the, uh, the the dynamic, if you like, for the, the the legacy debate which is happening at the minute, and uh, of course in the north of Ireland. That you know how I situate my work and how many people do uh, in the field of transitional justice is we look at that and we say that you know it's very easy to let sleeping dogs lie, but particularly when we have marginalised voices that were never given a voice during the conflict. Uh, we do need those voices to be heard and Unquiet Graves, amongst other uh, post-conflict documentaries, do give a voice and do empower victims to tell their story. You were four years at this. For yourself, and you're a man from the North as well, did this reveal happenings that you would never have known? Were you surprised by what the documentary has brought to us? Well, no, I I come from West Belfast myself, so I come from an area where there were a lot of killings Mm. also. But even even at that, I always wanted to make a film about an overarching story in regards to collusion, uh, because the community that I come from were victimised by the state. But I, I never, I, I realised that it was grand in scale, but it wasn't until I had read Anne Cadwallader's book, Lethal Allies, that I realised the scale of the involvement of particular officers within the RUC and the British Army, uh, the UDR. Uh, it wasn't until I read that book that I realised that this was something that was very, very systemic. It was institutional, and it was uh, it really it dumbfounded me once I'd, I'd learned a lot more about it. Let's bring uh, into the conversation a man who was there on that fateful night. Barney is with us on the show this afternoon. Uh, Barney O'Dowd. Barney, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thank you. Can you begin? by telling me what do you recall of that night when you lost three members of your family well to start it's a bit of a story Mm. so I need to tell you the story yes go ahead well it was 4th of January you should say and it was a Sunday night after Christmas and that was a, a night that was reserved for a brother and his wife 
and they two or, three, two or three of their children. And they had duly arrived at about half past six or so, and they, it was, a meal was ready, everything. We were, myself and my brother were in the sitting room. The rest of the family, except Barry, were in the kitchen. I knocked came to the door, and they, my wife answered it. I don't when he, she opened the door, he put his foot in, so she wouldn't get it shut. And they, there was three of them. They just had to walk three steps, and we were in the sitting room, which was on the right. The kitchen of the house was on the left, and the rest of the whole people that was there, my brother's wife and children and all the ones too who were in for the sort of Christmas party yes. sort of thing. And uh, he, he walked, the three were in there and this guy was standing with a gun in his hand and he said this is a hold up. Well I <laughs> he didn't need to tell me I could see that <laughs> hey, hey. well we were speechless we were all speechless and the first thing he did was he fired a shot and it got me in my elbow another elbow but the wrist and it spun me around I got up and I got another one which spun me around again but it was Lower, it was down my thigh. I could stay. By this time, it was totally and absolutely bewildered, you see. Yes. And uh, I could see my brother Joe, who was a very courageous man, going midair for this fellow and the odd two that were standing behind him. Now, that was as close as we are, nearly. And I could see Joe happen like that and I knew he was shot dead I <clears throat> must have shot me again the few times through the body and when I I had passed out but when I awoke Joe was lying to my right hand dead and my son Barry who had been there and I didn't realise he was in the room was on the other side. I, I pulled myself up by the handle of the door onto my feet and uh, it was pandemonium right through the rest of the house but these these guys were gone. And I uh, pulled myself onto my feet and went into the hallway or got into the hallway and Declan was lying dead in the hallway. He had been com- heard the noise and was coming out from the kitchen into the sitting room. So that was actually the scene. And uh, of course, the rest of it now was my mother getting me to hospital and so forth. You'd been shot five times? I shot through my body five times. Yes. And three, and three, three family members dead. Three, three had died. Three of your family had died on the scene, yes. Three of my family yes. had died. 
And they, of course, the next thing he can really remember is being in hospital mm. and uh, being seen to that uh, rang uh, the ambulance and got into the hospital. Mm. And uh, <coughs> that was it now until uh, I woke on Tuesday on Tuesday morning to this uh, announcement about the King's Mill killing mm. oh, just in time for that but they, uh, a short time after that the doctor the surgeon came around and he said they uh, told me how just how seriously I was hurt and he says you have a, a family a wife and family at home and I'm begging you he said to live for if you haven't got the will to live he says all the work we have done on you would only be lost you have to have that desire to live and strange enough, I got that desire to live. And, you know, even with no one about the three deaths, you would nearly think I just wanted to go along with them. But no, I thought of the family at home. And I got this desire to live. And uh, it was all good news after that. What age are you today? What age am I? Yes, 96 in a week. <laughs> you are one great man, may I say. You really are. You came through and you did make it and you went back to your family and you tried as best you could to rebuild your life. Yes. That must have been really difficult. Well, it was wonderful to get back home. Before that, before I got home... That doctor or surgeon I arrived in one day with the, into the, my ward. I, of course, I was in, in intensive care for quite a while. Yes. But he arrived in with some students with him. And he told them the story that day and the whole thing and wanted to know of me how I lived. So I told him, apart from his own expertise, the will he gave me to live helped me to live. And you had lost two sons, Declan and Barry. Yes. Nineteen, Declan was. Barry was 24. And a brother of yours, Joe. Yes. That's right. How many children have you surviving? How many survived of oh, your children? six. We had eight of a family. Okay. Did you remain long living where you were living then before you moved to County Meath? Did I... Stay where you were? Where, where, where? Oh, no, we, I, as soon as we, I got fit enough to travel, we started looking for a home where decent people lived. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yes. Yes. And you moved to Meath, was it? You moved to and Meath? We, were moved to, we bought a house in Meath in March. Yeah. And by 
my wife had been going crazy to get out of it, you see. Yeah. But once we had the house bought, she settled down a lot, and I was prepared for to stay, foolishly enough, and do my own thing about this, you know. Yeah. But uh, Kathleen had uh, been out and ran into one of the uh, uh, hold-ups that did... The 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 um, army roadblock, the army and UVF yes. and so forth. Yeah. But this was totally a UVF thing. Yeah, and she had Noel with her, mm. and I took Noel out of the car, and I thought she thought he was going to be shot too. Mm. So when she came in, she said, "Look, we're for Navin tomorrow." <laughs> yes, <laughs> we yeah. hadn't even seen about the electricity in the house or anything. Just the house was sitting there. Yeah, so we were in Navin that the next day. So that little incident prompted her to say, listen, no more thoughts of staying here. We are going. Before I come back to Sean, I want to ask you this. Why we, Do you ever consider, why were you targeted? Why, was why were you targeted as a family? Why? Well, I'd possibly maybe would have been the most known because we had the uh, milk business and the coal business. Hmm. And we did a lot of business in in the local area and around. Hmm. And, uh, well, our name was in every house type of thing. Yes. You know, you yes. we got moved to people who got both of us, coal and milk. Yeah. And that was over quite an area now, hmm. you know. So you were a prominent family of a faith at the time and you were just randomly picked out and selected. Oh, yes. Uh, plus the fact maybe the location of her home mm. made it uh, more attractive for them for we lived down a lane and, and uh, it was easy to get at it without travelling down the lane. There was all roadways from from other laneways that just had only to cross a field. Yes. And it is a, it was an easy an easy target. Yeah. Let me come back to Sean. Sean, you listen, and I'm sure you've listened to Barney on, on many times, but describing that scene as he does there and the massive loss to his family, it's horrendous, isn't it, to contemplate even today what happened then? Well, it is. You know, uh, it's people like Barney that drive me in doing the work that I do. But, you know, Barney's story... Uh, there, there are many stories like Barney also, but the, the, the problem is is that these stories have been marginalised. These stories haven't been heard. Uh, they're not mainstream stories. You know, Everything was seen through the prism of a terrorist campaign, but if you were killed by the state, it was marginalised, it was hidden, and you never heard stories like Barney's stories. So, I mean, it means a lot, obviously, to the Odoud family, and it means a lot to me also to be here today and for Barney's story to be heard. And and we must say, just before uh, the O'Dowd family uh, were destroyed by this, hours or just before that, there was another family who were hit as well in similar circumstances. Was it the same gang that hit them? Yes, it was the same gang. It was the Glenon gang. So 17 miles away, the modus operandi of this gang was usually to, to attack two places at the one time. Yeah. And they tried to wipe two families out, the O'Dowd family and the, the Reavy family in White Cross. And they killed three, three Reavy brothers only 17 miles away, basically at the same time, on the same night. Innocent people, again, targeted because of their faith. And as Barney said there, the next day, and he remembered that being in hospital... We had the Kingsmill Massacre, where another 10 men were indiscriminately killed because of their faith on the other side. 
That's correct. That was the, the next night. So yeah. not not far from the, the Reavy home in White Cross, we had 10 Protestant workmen that were killed the next night. So this was a cycle that was going on. And no doubt about it, this was collusion between the British state and loyalist terrorists. Without doubt, yeah. And, and Barney, for you, do, do you, do you think, when you think back and think to those times and, and subsequently what's emerged... Have you an idea of who carried out this? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Do you know names? There was a very good detective team to me in hospital. And, uh, well, they were making such a, a, a bad case of Owens, I didn't even want to talk to the man. Mm. But uh, one of my brothers insisted on me and having him, and he turned out to be a very good detective called George Christie. And he told me, he said, this, we know who this is. And he's a hard man. He says, and we've had him in before. He says, but he, he took a... He indicated that that had been pretty rough on him. But he says, we are going to get him this time. And, they, well, I left it to him after that. But then uh, there was a change in the in the put it down leadership of the what were you the UVF surgeon or something no or in the in the police force the RUC was it sorry in the police force yes, yes the RUC and uh, the whole change the whole thing changed after that and uh, he actually admitted to me that he knew well who was doing it. But there wasn't a thing he could do about it. He thought he could, mm. but the situation had changed, and he, he couldn't go any further. So, in other words, you had a good cop there who was yes, doing his guy. job and was willing to follow this yes. and investigate and everything, yes. but he was removed. Yes. Yes, Sean? Was. Yeah, we can also, I mean, I, I just like the add that, actually, but I think it's very important uh, to note this. That the man involved in, 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 in killing members of the O'Dowd family, Robin Jackson, who was the leader of the Glen Ann gang, was a special branch OUC member and also a member of the UDR, which is the British Army at the time. But more importantly, he was created, he was an agent that was created by the state and all his killings, as far as we know, were, were organised killings against members of the GA, members, innocent members of the Catholic community. So he was encouraged and as far as we know also, he was one of the, the, the biggest mass murderers during the conflict and he personally killed over 100 people himself while under the pay of the state. It's very, very important to note that. Yeah. I want to take a short break on late lunch. Sean Murray has produced this wonderful uh, piece of work called Unquiet Graves, the story of the Lenan gang. And I'm talking to Sean and Barney O'Dowd, who lost two sons and a brother in an attack back in 1976. Stay with us on Late Lunch. Unquiet Graves, the story of the Lanan gang. We're talking about it on Late Lunch today. And I just want to correct something I said earlier. It's been screened in Navin, in the Solstice, this Thursday. It's Thursday evening at 7.30 in the Solstice. I highly recommend this to you to get along and see it. It's a brilliant piece of work. And I'll tell you something, it really will open your eyes up. So that's 7.30 in the Solstice in Navin to see this on this Thursday uh, evening, 7.30. And tickets available at Solstice. 
solstice and you can go along on the evening as, as well. Um, Sean, let me come back to you for a second. We, we talk about, you know, collusion and this has risen its head many times and the legacy issues as well. Why haven't these people received any justice all these years later? Well, for people like Barney to receive the justice that they want, it entails the, the whole narrative of the conflict change. So the hegemonic narrative is that there was a, a terrorist campaign that Britain was keeping the peace between between two uh, tribal factions, and uh, and that it was a, a sectarian war that they were they were just trying to get to peacekeep. But I mean, we know differently. I mean, the state were one of the main protagonists in the conflict, and were encouraging and involved in wide scale collusion against the Catholic community. I want to read some comment we're getting. Keep them coming to us. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. So you can call in on 1857-15958. To hear Barney's story is on the one hand absolutely terrifying, says a listener, but such a brilliant man to have lived through that incident. May God bless him. Another one says, Jerry, what an amazing man Barney is uh, to have on your show today. He's made of strong stuff to survive that attack, both physically and mentally. Wishing him continued good health and luck. And please, God, this country never returns to those dark days, says another listener today. Another one, Jerry, what a man. Can't wait to see his story on the screen. And Navin, so there you are. You have a ticket sale or two there, for sure, anyway, for Thursday evening. Thursday evening, the solstice, I say, again at 7.30 Barney I want to come back to you for a, for a moment and you're 96 years of age now, it's over 40 years later you're still campaigning for an answer from you know the authorities in Britain and Northern Ireland what would make you happy, now you can never be happy having lost two children and a brother and all that followed for your family what would satisfy you at this stage to happen very hard to know because you'd want to get away from a feeling of hate now that was one thing that I was able to do I didn't hate anybody after it I didn't hate even Jackson and they because hate is a self-devouring and self-destructive so that 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 was a big help. Family were terrific, terrific family. All together, they gave us such encouragement and were so good to me and their mummy. Right, right through. Kathleen, who passed away yes. a few years ago as well, that is an amazing quality to have in anybody. You lose two of your children. They're murdered. Your brother's murdered. And you don't hate. No. You never have. No. I never could say I hated anybody. A lot of people I didn't agree with. But didn't hate them. Couldn't hate. Hate's self-devour. But today, you'd still like some answers. You'd still like to know why. Oh, yes. I, I, well, of course, <laughs> we had the, the British state, the Northern Ireland state too, and the, uh, with the, what way would I put it? With the connivance, really, with the connivance of uh, all their bodies, 
There's other bodies being... It's hard to say, but... We didn't get an awful lot from the church in the way of encouragement. Hmm. Now, I didn't hate any of them for that. And, yes. And but you felt they could have spoken up more? Oh, yes. Questioned oh, more? Really, I really do. Uh, not alone in my case, but in, yes. in most cases. Hmm. Our neighbours were even worse treated than that. Hmm. Yes, we lost two children. Uh, well, there's things you can say and there's things you can't say. I understand. And there's, there's some of the things I can't say. Yeah. Even today. Even I understand. today. I understand that. Yes. Well. I do. I do. But I hear what you're saying and what you're looking for. And that's that's not unreasonable, Sean, for, for the Odells or any family who this touched to say, come on. It's time. It's time to own up. It's time to tell us the reality of this. How deep was the collusion? Who was involved? Who gave the directions? Who carried out these atrocities? Of course, well, I mean, it's just as simply as saying, stop redacting the documents for 70 years plus. Stop these mystery fires that are going off. Stop these uh, documents going missing through asbestos accidents. I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's got to the point now where documents that, that I have seen uh, from the Ministry of Defence that weren't redacted, that weren't covered, uh, are now redacted after the the published the, the sorry the release of unquiet graves. So we're talking about documents that we could see maybe four years ago are now redacted. So they're still redacting documents uh, to hide the truth from victims like Barney O'Dowd during the conflict. So this is still going on today. Still going Despite on. Despite the peace process of 20 years and the, the relative peace we've had since, you know, thank God that that's, the guns have fallen silent to a greater or lesser degree. But this still continues. It's still continuing, yeah. Why did you make this? Did you make this with a view to, again bringing this into the public domain, not letting people like the O'Dowds be forgotten or those who lost their lives in the hope that maybe this would act in a little way to prompt people to finally address this. Well, I think the film is a very powerful medium. I think that there are two ways that that families can get any semblance of justice. It's through the criminal criminal justice system, which is very, very constrained because obviously these documents are being hidden and the work of barristers and solicitors can only get to a certain level. But they can't constrain the voices of Barney O'Dowd. Film can bring that voice to another level. It can, it can empower uh, the, the voices of people like the O'Dowd family and it can't constrain it. Uh, this film will be going all around the world. I'm going to Australia in a couple of weeks with the film. Uh, it'll be streaming from the 1st of June uh, from Amazon Prime and iTunes, etc. So the story will be getting out there. And more importantly, the reason why I do it is because uh, the, the voices of these marginalised victims uh, are forever immortalised. Those stories will be there forever. They will outlive us all. Look, we're going to run out of time shortly, but I, I do want to mention a couple of, of, of people in the documentary. John Weir, former RUC man, now living in the Southern Hemisphere. His revelation, shocking. Yeah, that is very It was shocking. a plot to go into a, a school. Catholic primary school. And indiscriminately murder children. That's correct, yeah. That's right. And uh, that other lady, Margaret Campbell, whose husband, Pat, was murdered, that scene where she was taken to the RUC station. You're taken into the nest of the vipers themselves. This is, this is a woman who's seen her own husband being shot dead on their doorstep. 
But what Margaret Campbell told me, what was worse, was being brought to the ID parade mm. by these RUC men, uh, people who were involved in the killing, and having to put her hand on, on the shoulder of the person she's seen killing her husband. How could she do it? And, and that they're just aspects of this wonderful work, only aspects of it. Barney, you've spent your life and a great part of it in Drumree and County Mead now and reared the rest of your children, some of whom are with you today. There's just one thing I'd like to make clear now. Yeah. When I said I don't hate and have never hated, I couldn't forgive. Yes. That to be out, and I couldn't forget. Yes. They're important points to make as well. Yes. Yeah. But subsequently with your move, you've settled into County Meath and enjoyed your years there with your family. Oh, yes, yes. very much so. But the campaign continues, even from County Meath and yeah. through this documentary and a lot more as well. I'll remind you again, go see this. Go to the Solstice on Thursday, 7.30. It's coming out later in the year on uh, Amazon Prime. You, it'll be on iTunes or to ear screening it. Sean's travelling all over the world. Here's your chance in the North East to go and see this firsthand for yourself. The Solstice tickets available from them and on the evening as well. But for the moment, congratulations to you, Sean Murray, on a brilliant brilliant work and thank you so much Barney O'Dowd and your children for joining me here today on the show I really do appreciate it and I wish you well and I please God you will have justice and answers sooner rather than later thank you all indeed thank you now he was the hero for Dunboyne when they won the Mead Senior Football Championship the Keegan Cup late last year what a win they had over Summerhill he scored the big goal on the day but he's facing into a quite different challenge for his family now I'm joined on the line yes you know him well if you're a Mead supporter and from Dunboyne and further afield Stuart Lowndes is on the line hello Stuart Hi, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for taking our call. Now, this is uh, away from the football field for sure. It's it's your wife. Tell us the story. Yeah, well, definitely a big change from the football field, as I said. Um, long story short, I suppose, um, Sinead became well at, or unwell at the end of November. Um, kind of general stomach pain, cramps, and her stomach actually started to, to swell. Um, this was actually on a Friday evening and she kind of just thought it was one of these things that would pass um, on the Monday she went to work as normal and kind of in work she was saying there's, there's something funny going on here so she asked her job could she leave and go to the GP and um, went down to the GP and they've actually said straight off the bat they think it's uh, something wrong with her liver or it could be her gall, gallbladder um, and said get straight to A&E so she presented an A&E in Blanchestown in Connolly Hospital and um, Underwent tests, MRIs, CTs, etc. And she had an endoscopy scope um, done as well. Manchester then they said it's gone above their their level of care, and she was emergency transferred to St Vincent's Hospital in Stillorgan, um, which we didn't know at the time. But it's actually the national transplant unit for the country. Um, so she came out here on a Thursday evening, and on the Friday morning, we were met with a consultant who basically told us she has two blood clots and um, on the two main veins in and out of her liver. And they expected her to basically get fairly unwell and have a liver transplant immediately. And they're kind of preparing us for the worst. And they preempted their size and done all the, there's a lot of tests associated with it, the transplant procedure, which are your ECG and they kind of check your other organs. So everything is in order. And so that was kind of all very scary and a lot to get your head around. And amazingly, Sinead actually, her condition improved. Now, it did start her on different medications and 
kind of their level of care, her condition improved, um, and she was discharged before Christmas to, to come home. Um, now, the actual diagnosis, what they what they call the condition with the two blood clots, is a condition called Bud Chiari syndrome. Basically, affects affects one in a million people worldwide. Um, and underlying to this is actually caused by a, a blood disorder named Jack Two. So that kind of brought us along through the through the initial part. Um, and did you think you were out of the woods? You know, when 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 she does uh, get better, I'm sure you're thinking, yeah. uh, Stuart, oh, listen, yeah. we're we're over this, and and and, and everything is going to be okay. And by the way, I just want to tell listeners, you were in the middle of wedding preparations, weren't you, at this stage? Yeah, yeah, we did. We postponed our wedding. This all kind of Schneider was admitted to the hospital at the end of November. We were due to get married on the 21st of December. And as I said, the consultants kind of expected her to get very unwell very quickly. So they obviously can't make the decision for us, but they basically advised, look, I don't think she'd be, she'd be well to, to, to get married. So we postponed the date. Um, but as you said, things kind of improved on Irish people in general. I think we are fairly optimistic. Mm. They had they had told us that a kind of a liver transplant was inevitable within our lifetime. They said it could be six months, six years kind of thing. So we kind of went back to, we probably went back to life. Yes. Quickly, normal life too quickly and thought we'd, we'd all go back to work and we'd fire away. We did get married now. Thank God we had a great day in February. Yes. Um, and so the wedding went ahead. But amazingly, she actually became slightly unwell two days after the wedding. Which again, like the, kind of, the body is an amazing thing. She got through the day and the whole weekend and the, the Monday after the wedding she became unwell again. You'd think it was on purpose, wouldn't you? It is. How these things work out? So her, she kind of started presenting with the same symptoms. Um, and we did get away. We went away for a week's holiday, and we came back, and she presented to St Vincent's, came straight out to St Vincent's in Sillorgan again, and went underwent a small procedure. It's common for liver patients to, to kind of drain the there's a buildup of fluid on your stomach, so they, they drain what's called ascites um, from your stomach. And um, so this was done on a Tuesday. She became very unwell the following day, which doctors kind of thought she might just be wiped out essentially from having the procedure. And um, but she actually took very unwell on that Wednesday and she went for an emergency CT scan and they found a brand new blood clot down around the bell and that's kind of when things have escalated now kind of above the, the level of care we can mm. get in, in Ireland. So it's kind of where the the big, the big move comes in. It's Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge are the specialists um, in Europe for, for double transfers and they actually specialise in the small bell. So we're actually just waiting on a phone call at the moment to uh, to find out when we're being transferred across. To okay, so this can't be dealt with, Stuart, in Ireland, just to make this clear. You have to go to the UK yeah, and Addenbrooke's are going to take Sinead. But not just Sinead, you're going there for the foreseeable future. And is little Paige going with you, your yeah, daughter? Yeah, she will eventually. Um, myself and Sinead will go, just the two of us originally. Um, Dad and Brooks will actually re- they'll repeat a lot of the testing that's been done in Ireland and um, obviously just to have on their own files and then when they formally accept her we'll look to bring Paige over and, and mm. get a, a base set up for the for the three of us and tonight's mum is actually going to come with us as well so okay. we'll, we'll be close by um, mm. so What's she facing uh, Stuart? What, 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 what is the actual what's she going to ha- she's going to have to have a liver transplant yes? Yeah it will be a liver transplant and a small bowel transplant Both? The, the, double, the, the double transplant so yeah. it's a, obviously major surgery and it's major recovery time mm. Um, they reckon it be about three months worth of recovery time and then things get complicated again because they don't actually do small bell transplants in Ireland so there's nobody here for the aftercare so we'll have to stay over there till their doctors and consultants sign off on her that they're, they're happy with her to, to come back to Ireland so they're saying it could be up to 12 months is the, the timeline they're giving us at the moment but obviously mm. these things change fairly quickly as well so yeah. we'll, uh, we just have to go under their care now and 
hopefully uh, everything goes to plan. So this is um, a huge change in all your lives. And, and the priority is yeah. that Sinead has this double transplant. That's number one. Yeah, and yeah, that she's exactly. cared for as best she can. But you're going to have to uh, quit your work, go over there for the uh, with little page, your yeah. mum-in-law as well. So really a whole yeah. family uh, going from Ireland to England to live there for you. And this is going to be costly. Yeah, exactly. It's, as I just said, I've taken a career break and my, my employers will be very good. Um, there's a job there for me when I come back, but obviously Schneid won't be working either, so we're mm. essentially unemployed. We, we've not steady income whilst we're there, um, which is essentially kind of the GoFundMe page, obviously. It was and it actually blew us away, to be honest. <laughs> well, the need and the, the outpouring of generosity. Yes, but I ain't surprised because you are a well-known guy in the world of sport and you know the way the GAA rallies round yeah. together for people and Sinead yeah. is a lovely young woman. She's only 29 years of age. She has a whole life in yeah. front of her. Tell them what you achieved. You set up the GoFundMe page. I think this is the quickest and greatest response I've ever seen. You set a goal of €60,000 to try and get that that would enable you to move for the year to the UK. Tell them how much you got in three days. We, I think it's currently at seventy-seven thousand euro after three days, but the the goal itself, the sixty thousand euro, I think was met within twenty-four hours. So, my God, as you said, I've been blown away by the outpouring and Ireland itself. Obviously, you said the GAA, but kind of Ireland as a community and a great yes. community and the GAA, they all just kind of pulled together. Mm. Um, we were only looking at the GoFundMe's homepage, and I think that the top three um, GoFundMe pages in the country were actually give me trace back to GAA with Lee in Westmead and Kieran O'Connor in Cork yeah. um, and then obviously Sinead's GA toys so yeah. as you said it's, it's an amazing community but kind of the, the generosity and kind of the, the, the wider appeal and social media as well just kind of blows things out of water these days how, how quick word spreads and how, how quickly people come to help and yeah. it's not it's not just the funding as well like there's people getting in touch saying they have a friend of a friend who actually works in the hospital or works nearby and people just want to give their help any way they can so it's, it's yeah. been amazing it and, is it takes kind of takes that stress away you know, as, as I said the most important thing is the, the surgery and the recovery and we can just go ahead and, and concentrate on getting Sinead the best of care and Absolutely Absolutely The GoFundMe page just mention it there again would you for me? Yeah it's, uh, the GoFundMe page is called Support Sinead um, it's, it's, it would probably actually be found on the homepage but yeah. um, there's, there's plenty of links floating around the There is medium. There is Support Sinead yeah. is GoFundMe.com forward slash Support Sinead and you're going to yeah. uh, keep that page open and any monies that come in that are over and above and that you won't need you're donating it Yeah that's essentially the plan as you said um, I said time frames are kind of up in the air but as you said any Anything that's made extra will be donated back to St. Vincent Hospital here and obviously Adam Brooks across the way will be yes. taken care as well, so it'll all be divided. Yeah. Um, and we are kind of... The main thing as well, we, it's, it's on the end of the GoFundMe page, is just to spread the word about organ donation because, I'll be honest myself, I would have been quite ignorant to the whole situation before you're actually immersed in it. Um, and the, the details are there just to, to become an organ donor if people could. It's, it's 50050 if you just text the word donor. Um, you'll get a reply and they'll take your details to, to get you an organ donation card yes. um, because as I said it's, it's not just Sinead like we're in St Vincent Hospital here at the moment um, I'm actually downstairs here at the moment but there's 20 people as inpatients here waiting on transplant um, and there's obviously outpatients there's people at home literally waiting for a phone call to come in once, once an organ becomes available um, I'm not sure on the overall statistics for, for every organ but I know currently there's 40 people in Ireland waiting for a liver alone so that obviously grows greater and greater when you're taking kidneys, lungs. I think there's eight organs that can be transplanted. So if we can spread the, the word of that, it, it would be 
Absolutely. We, for us also. Yes, we'll be doing it here. We did it especially uh, at an organ donation week, and I will mention it again. Five zero zero five zero. Text that word, and away you yeah. go. Wish yeah. Sinead well from everyone here on LMFM Radio, will you? And Thank we'll you keep in touch with you over, I promise, the next year. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thanks again. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Bye-bye. That's Stuart Lowndes there, his wife Sinead, 29 years of age, needing that double transplant. They have to go to the UK for a year. It costs, folks. GoFundMe.com forward slash support Sinead. Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Don't have to tell you the fire there last night. Absolutely devastating. I'm sure there are loads of people who've been to Paris have visited the cathedral. I have myself a couple of times over the years and it was mightily impressive. I think everybody felt a little bit of them fall away last evening to watch those images on our TV screens. We're going to Paris now where I'm joined by Monsignor Hugh Connolly who's chaplain to the Irish community in the French capital. Hugh, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thank you very much for taking my call. You saw this firsthand. You were close by. Yeah, well, uh, people who may know where the Irish College uh, is will know that it's in the 5th, the 5th arrondissement, just up the hill, really, from the Seine. And uh, really, I was just out from my walk about 6.30 last evening, and you could see the smoke billowing over the building. So um, we knew something was up and uh, then headed down towards the river. So, yeah, we're, we're quite close by, just a couple of hundred metres away. The scenes were horrific of the massive fire, but the the quietness and the shock in people's faces, did that say it all? It did, because, you know, this is an extraordinary, as you said there in the intro, this is an extraordinary building. It's at once uh, the heart and soul of, you know, the Catholic Diocese of, of Paris, but it is so much more. And as the President of the Republic described it last night, he said it's uh, le coeur et l'âme de la France et de, de Paris. It's the heart and soul of Paris and France. So it crosses lines of faith and and, and religion and goes uh, touches everybody. And a lot of the people who were out there last night just looking at the flames and the smoke were, were regular Parisians who were just stopped what they were doing and came to, to just to, to, I suppose, to stare in disbelief. Mm. I looked at there and I thought... It's going to be just completely gutted, but not so. The, the the spire fell, we saw that all right, but the two main towers at the front seem to be still standing. And somebody was saying that within the building itself, a lot was preserved. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that, that seems to be the story of heroism now that is coming out, because as, as the roof was burning overhead, uh, we all saw those pictures. Uh, teams went in and it took uh, some of the great treasures, uh, notably the crown of thorns, which we would be familiar with, mm. and also the tunic worn by, uh, by King Louis, uh, as well as many, many, many other things. So they've all been transferred to the Hotel de Ville, which is the large town hall just up the road. And indeed, they are now being transferred from there just this afternoon to a more secure location. So, yeah, some extraordinary work was carried out to salvage and to save uh, priceless, really priceless artefacts. The French, it sums up uh, what the French are about, really. It's, it's in, their, in their makeup, really, this cathedral. Um, today, you see already, look at the swell of support in terms of monetary support. You see the President Macron saying, we are rebuilding this place. This will really be a, a focal rallying point for the nation. It is. I mean, people will say, uh, people especially come from abroad, you know, the Eiffel Tower that connects with Paris, which of course it does. But in terms of a place which is actually the crossroads of the nation, the crossroads of the city, it's in the Ile de la Cité, which is a little island in the River Seine. It's it's kilometre zero, as they call it. So it's, it is the very centre. And 
just as a little anecdote on that, the spire which fell at ni- last night, it actually marked that kilometre zero and it stood directly above uh, the altar, the main altar where, where Mass was offered. So this had a huge symbolism both in the life of uh, France and in the life of Paris. And when you think of what it's witnessed over the years, you know, she's the great old lady and she has seen everything come and go. She's seen cardinals and kings. She's seen poets and philosophers. She's seen writers. She's seen scholars, saints. She's seen wars, revolutionaries. She's seen installations, trials of Joan of Arc. She's seen so much that this is really the eyewitness, as it were, to modern French history and indeed well before modern times. You're part of history there yourself because the Catholic Church in Ireland has had a presence there for, what, over 400 years and uh, the college, the Irlande is there, the Chapelle St. Patrick and the Rudy's Irlande. Ar- 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 it's all there. You know, there is so much Irish uh, presence in the area as well. Well, that's the, I suppose, the, the Latin Quarter, as it was known, uh, it was really the student quarter and, and it was the place where people, St. Thomas Aquinas studied here, for instance, or uh, Calvin studied here. Mm. Some of the greats of European history came here. They all would have passed the door of, of Notre Dame uh, many, many times on their journey to and from school. So it is an extraordinarily historic place and, and people who would have visited here were just very, I suppose, delighted that the old uh, Irish College of Places, Yolanda, as you say, has been restored and is now a, a very vibrant cultural centre as well as a chaplaincy. And uh, at any one time, 30 young Irish students as well as artists and other people are in residence here uh, and savouring the life of one of the greatest cities on earth. You've a lot of links back to close to where I'm talking to you from today. You're a man from Burren. What a football tradition there is in the Burren in, uh, near Warren Point in County Down. And you studied at the CBS in your, and you spent some time in Dundalk, yes. That's true. Well, thankfully, Warren never had to count on my talent for their footballers. <laughs> they would have never got anywhere. But it was, as all people born in that native heat, <laughs> you know how to follow the team. And still, I still do, as I've been yes. saying with them at present. But yes, yeah, so I went to, to school in Uri and then lived in the Dowdles Hill area of Dundalk for about six years when I worked for Bishop's Conference. So that was a, that was a very pleasant time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as the crow flies, not extraordinarily far from home at all. Mm, just while you're with me, in a general sense, in Paris and France and all that's going on, I'm sure you don't want to hear the word Brexit again and uh, you know where Macron stands and this and the French people they're a very independent nation as well but pro-European on the other hand yet within France there's a dichotomy as well of Marianne Le Pen on one side and Macron on the other where is France like at this point in time Macron in particular I'm interested just from a from a local voice there well possibly one one of the things that's more uh, difficult for him to handle at the moment than Brexit because Brexit in some ways gives them a little bit of a distraction yeah. uh, is the famous Gilets Jaunes uh, um, yes the protest protest and uh, that's you know that has hit his popularity enormously this is ordinary people uh, now there are some very very violent uh, people who, who piggyback on top of that but by mm. and large there's been people coming for the certainly for the first weeks coming from the provinces and coming up to Paris to protest or going to the major cities of late that has broken down a little bit and there are more unsavoury elements getting involved and there does seem to be a bit of but that has not helped him and so his popularity is not great um, so I suppose in many ways playing a European card which he does very well and as a very sincere card because he is an ardent European and also, for instance, his, his, his standing on the Paris, as they call it here last night, just outside Notre Dame, flanked by the Prime Minister, flanked by the Mayor of Paris, and flanked by the uh, Archbishop of Paris, was an, ex- was an extraordinarily powerful moment when he said, you know, as the flames were behind him, he said, we will rebuild this. And, uh, you know, come as the moment, come as the man. So he does have great leadership 
you know, potential, but uh, but it's difficult. It's difficult to be a leader at the moment, and mm. it's difficult to be a leader in France. Mm. And the um, I, I was to say to you the when you see him uh, standing there on the steps, as you mentioned in that image, in a way, a disaster like this can be turned into a very positive for him personally. It can be turned into positive for him, uh, something personal, some personal certainly uh, boost. I would imagine. I also like to think, you know, that as I said, like this is the, the, the spiritual homeland of the of of, of the of the, the capital Catholic uh, faith, and also beyond that, other faiths. I think there might actually be a dividend there too, because it was extraordinary last night just walking around the banks of the Seine and hearing people. Some were singing hymns, others were just standing quietly. It was a great solidarity, and and you know, in France, that's not a very unusual sound. It's a, it's a, you know, the laïcité they call it here. It's a long-standing separation between church and state mm. in France. But to, just to see that kind of solidarity. It's something very, very positive, and um, I think that's 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 a good that will come out of this. That people, when they need to, will, will pull together uh, across lines, whether they be lines of faith or lines of your know, nationality or lines of different ways of political lines that are that are there for mm. a long time in France. But this was a way of at least pulling people together and showing some great solidarity. Just final question: Was it a living, working place of worship up to to the fire? I know there's a lot of work going on at the moment, or was that a thing of the past? It's an extraordinary thing. Uh, the the, the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral is a full uh, cathedral. I would have been going down there tomorrow evening to the Chrism Mass, you know, the blessing right. of the oils. Just as people in priests there in, 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 in your neck of the woods, we'd be going either to Armagh or to Mullingar, depending on where they're listening from, uh, Meath or Armagh Diocese. Every diocese in the world does this. Uh, in Holy Week, and it was gearing up for the Holy Week. And the extraordinary thing, and I have to give great credit to the French for this, is for a place which could welcome 14 million uh, tourists and pilgrims every year, it still managed to mount a full suite of prayer, masses, and uh, spiritual events. Uh, so it was an extraordinarily, extraordinarily well-run uh, place. And I've no doubt it, it will return, but it will return mm. to different guys because some of what has been lost is lost for good and simply can only be replaced in an interpretive way rather than with, with, with what has been lost because it's it's too historic to replace. Absolutely. Thank you for talking to us uh, today, Monsignor Connolly. We really do appreciate to get a voice from uh, the local area here in Ireland uh, to Paris on, on a sad day for the French people, but one where the phoenix will rise from the flames. We're promised that, and I'm sure it will uh, watch this space. Thank you indeed for joining me on the Thank show. God Thank bless you. Much. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Monsignor Hugh Connolly there, chaplain to the Irish community in Paris, a living, working church. I know the way the churches will pull together. Of course, all the ceremonies over the Easter will be catered for. You may recall last week that another farm tragedy happened. This time in Wexford, a three-year-old little lad, oh my God, was killed following an incident with a low loader. Farms are literally deadly places for adults, but especially children. However, with some care and attention, listen to this, 90% of accidents are actually avoidable. No better time of the year to have a chat with Alma Jordan, founder of of AgriKids. Alma, you're welcome back to Late Lunch. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Ah, one tragedy is one too many, isn't it? I was just thinking of that little boy. I know, I know. And I, I suppose it brings me, me back to the, the moment I decided that I had had enough when it came to farm accidents. It was two two children in August 2014 that really spearheaded me to create the AgriKids concept because I truly felt that 
we weren't getting the message across with the methods that were out there and I felt that something new and all-inclusive had to be done. And I suppose when those two little boys um, passed away, I looked at my own child who was two at the time, Eamon, and I just said, what would I do um, if that was me, if I was that 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 family? And to be honest with you, I, I couldn't answer that. I just, I actually cried. And last week when I read what happened to that poor little boy in, in, in County Wexford, I just said, I hope upon hope their family has a great support around them. Because when it comes to a farming, they say a village raises a child, but a community rears a farm. And it really is testament to an area that when something like that does happen to a family, how the community actually rallies around them because they are going to need help. And unfortunately, when it even comes to a farming accident, there are people out there who immediately start on the blame game. And that's another aspect that a lot of people don't don't think about. They say, oh, well, what happened? Why was the child there? Who was in, in, who was in the attractor? Was there something broken on it? And that's in the aftermath of an accident. That's not the time to ask those questions. That's for the investigators to get in and, and to work out why it happened and how we can prevent it again. Because, yes, 90% of them can be prevented. Do you have any stats on children? Are many mm. children uh, killed on farms yeah. each year? What's the average? We're looking, the, over the last 10 years, we've lost 210 people. And in 10, total? In total, and 10% of those are children. Oh. And unfortunately, if we break it down further, 81% of that number, the reason is machinery. It's tractors, it's machinery, it's quad bikes. Um, massive push now on quad bikes. In, in Australia, just the day before yesterday, two children, seven and nine, were killed off quad bikes. They're a single passenger vehicle, Jerry. You need to have a helmet on. And even if you're going on straight terrain, they have every likelihood of turning over. And the issue with um, a quad bike accident isn't the fact that, you know, you are being flung off the bike and maybe banging a, a head. It's the vehicle actually landing on top of you. And it's something like 360 kilo of a machine that lands on top. So it, 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 you're, you're actually, you are, you are smothered and you are crushed. And um, so it's when you really kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, how the accident actually affects people. It can be very different to what people actually understand it to be. When you talk about machinery, and the, you, you see nowadays powerful tractors mm. on farms, bigger machinery, you know, carrying out greater tasks and being used even more of the time, it makes the job, the farming job, yeah. you know, much easier for the farmer. That's understandable that people yeah. ha- in, in, in have this machinery nowadays. What do you say to the farming community when it comes to machinery and children? A couple of pointers for them. You know, when machinery is working away, keep children away, what? How do you, do you educate your children? What do you do? Well, you, you kind of even have to strip it back to another level. Our population is growing and that population needs to be fed. And our food comes from farms. Mm. So for us to kind of get the food and everything out there, we have to intensify farming an awful lot more. And because the expectation has grown massively, even over the last 15 to, to 20 years, better ways of doing farming are being invented the whole time. And with that comes greater strides in technology, in, yep. in machinery. I mean, when my father was, was, was a farmer, he didn't have a cab on his combine and he dressed head to toe in waterproof gear. Now he has a combine harvester that tells him what the moisture levels are. It tells him, um, you know, how fertiliser has worked better in one aspect of the field. It can drive itself if he wants it to. Machinery is now huge and unfortunately the mentality around farm machinery hasn't evolved alongside the scale of them. We are still, I don't know why, but some people are still okay with allowing their 10 and 11 year old children to get behind the wheel of a 250 horsepower tractor. Uh, That's uh, the problem, uh, Jerry. No. I mean, I tell people, you know, 81% of children who've died 
is because of machinery and that needs to put a message out there that big machinery and children simply do not mix. And I, I, I do I do workshops all over the country. And by the end of June this year, I will have reached over 22,000 children. And a key message I put in is a whole segment of the workshop on machinery. And we talk about everything from the PTOs, the power takeoff um, accessories. And we also talk a lot about tractors and before I even go into the room, the principal has taken me to one side to say, would you mind really getting the message across to that child there and that child there? Because they're only 10 and we know they're at home driving tractors. And he says, not only that, I know that child is actually driving along the road on, on a tractor. And there seems to be this this way of thinking, sure, we all did it. It's what mm. we grew, grew up with. Now, I grew up on a farm and our tractor was an international tractor. If I was to c- compare that with, you know, the the New Holland tractor we have now, it's it's, it's oh, peas and pears. It really it? is. And day. Yeah, it yeah. really is. So we have to just have more awareness that these are massive kits of machinery. I talk about the blind spots with with the children. I talk about the importance of your etiquette when you're inside a tractor. I talk about the age you have to be. 16 years of age with your licence, you can drive a tractor around the roads. At 14 with that same licence, you can legally drive it around the farm or around a field. Are you happy with those ages? No. If I can't drive a one litre Clio car around the road at 16, why am I being trusted with, you know, a 250 horsepower tractor? That is a shocking mm, situation. And, you know, and what I would love to see happening now is is a lot more focus being placed on these uh, children who are being put into this, this situation. And the reason why, Jerry, I know it sounds, for people not on farms, it sounds absolutely shocking. But another reality I have to put in here is that we can't find labour. We cannot find workers. They're all going back to the work sites, the construction sites now. And so absolutely the farmer is turning to his children who have grown up on the farm, who are very, who are already are premeditated to run the farm in some way. So yes, they probably are quite capable at that age to, to drive a, a tractor. But here you are. This is your modus operandi. Yeah. You're talking to children. The name of the yeah. business, yeah. AgriKids. You're going into schools. You're visiting farms. Yeah. This is, And you're talking to children, trying to educate yes. them. So you're working from a different perspective. Absolutely. I don't this target the are. farmers at, at all. all. I engage and empower the uh, children so that when they get to that situation, that we have created an instinct in that child. We talk about putting on your seatbelt. I said, you don't think twice about getting into your car, which are 200 euro uh, you know piece of kit that we put our children into into a car seat you need to bring that in that principle into a tractor buckle yourself in and and then that in itself would save a life those few and, and all the children I say right guys let's all put our seatbelts on one two three click and I tell a child I said what's the first thing you do when you sit inside a tractor 90% of the time they, they, they will say I put on my seatbelt mm. you know and mm. you know if we get those little tips across we may not be having these conversations in a few years. We don't time, want to we? be having them. No, That's the idea here. We don't want to not. hear of another little absolutely boy not. anywhere. And the big complexity when it comes to, 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 to a farm is that it is a workplace. It is the most dangerous workplace in Ireland. Mm. 50% of all the workplace accidents are taking place on a farm. But on the other side, it's a business and it's a family biz- business and it, it has to run and it, it, it is also a, a home. So all those, which is why I barger on about this umpteen times we absolutely need to readdress our thinking into how we educate farmers and in how we generate farm safety awareness we it needs to be done in a dedicated fashion that is consistent and ongoing and it needs to include every aspects of the rural community do you think the farmers representative associations are doing enough no and that's my blanket response and the reason why i'm saying that is that the accidents aren't going down 
And I think the big reason for that is because we're not changing our thinking into how we are doing it. I started AgriKids because I wanted a child-focused initiative that worked alongside the lines of the Green Schools Programme, the Active Schools Programme. Farm safety is on the National School Curriculum under SPHE. It's up there with fire, road and farm. Sorry, fire, road and a water. Yeah. It needs to be put into schools properly, but it needs a third party to come in and do that because it's such a massive so- subject um, and it, it needs to be delivered in such a way that there is an outsider coming in to deliver the message because it does resonate much better with the children. And the other thing, adults have to take cognizance of this as well and I love what you're doing and I think it's a fantastic yeah, way yeah. of getting that message, getting in when they're young, talking to them, making them aware, yeah. asking them to go home. But adults, people who are responsible for the running of the mm-hmm. farms, women and men, need to take responsibility yeah. as well. Because I'm thinking of smaller children. You know when, let's say at this time of the year, there's a lot of uh, sowing and planting going on, then the spraying comes on, the harvesting is there, and there's machinery, silage to be cut, flying in and out yeah. of yards. It is a lethal oh, environment really, for small children, isn't it? Springtime, I suppose, for for many of us, is our New Year's Eve. It really is. I mean, we have new life. We have new growth happening on our farms. Our days are, are much longer. Children are about to be on their holidays now. I mean, even now, only a couple of days ago, they've actually started to put turnips into our field. Mm. And would you believe each of those tur- turnips are hand planted? Mm. So there's a lot of love and a lot of care that goes into our food production within Ireland. And But with that comes time pressures. We have we're up against the weather. We're up against um, you know get, getting the, the job done at the time it's supposed yes, to be done. Before seasonality the season changes, yes. it, it, there's always a pressure. So it is really important that when your children are home now, and if there is a farm involved in the lo- lo- locality, that the ground rules are set. When it's when it's you know the nine to five, the operating hours, the farm is out of bounds. Yeah. And if the children are you know to be brought down to the farm, they're being brought with an adult who doesn't have a job to do when they're on mm. when supervising they're on the farm. them. They're supervising them because it's a great way to, for children to learn about animals Absolutely. and business and enterprise and 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 animal welfare and everything. Sure, I remember else. being brought onto a farm it for the first time myself, and I I've had a love of it all my life mm. since. You know it's what I mean? Incredible. So let's I not, walked on it. I know. So I, I'm always saying, let's not turn it into this absolutely scary. No very scary place but we need to respect it Absolutely Alma Jordan from AgriKids is with me on late lunch Easter holidays on at the moment summertime coming farms great but you must be careful Now we were talking about machinery there a moment ago Can we move on Farm animals, you need to be careful. Oh, absolutely. And this time of of year, a lot of babies are happening. Calves are being born, lambs are being born. And the most dangerous farm animal is actually a freshly calved cow. She were seven times more likely to be killed by a freshly calved cow than by a bull. And that's maternal instincts is kicking in during the calving process. Even the first two hours after it is the most dangerous time to be around a cow. So it's, if, if we have to do anything with the, with the, with the little calf, whether it's tagging the ear or putting it, giving it a little bit, a bit of medicine, that mother needs to be put into a crushing device and held so we can do what needs, needs to be done. And then you need to get yourself out of the pen before you release her. And, and sometimes people forget about that and they're still in the pen as they're releasing her. And even though she's big and she is bulky, she can move extremely fast. A, a, a poor man only last year in his 70s. So here is a man who is decades working with, with animals, was helping his cow calf. And during the calving process, she turned on him and took, took the man's life. So I cannot overemphasize the the, the 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 danger with 
you know, the, the new mothers that yeah, are out so there. Mama respect, knows best. Yes, respect, respect, respect and care with animals. Now, mm-hmm. Alma, this just makes me shudder when I hear it because not alone children, but adults, mm. the slurry pit. Slurry pit, I know. And it's actually probably one of the most popular segments of my workshop. Um, I always talk about what it's made of and what do we use it for because it's very important that the children understand why we have these massive dangers on our farms and the reason why obviously with slurry is it's a fantastic fertiliser it's highly cost effective as well we feed the animals obviously but they give us slurry um, the dangers with slurry is that we don't spread slurry over winter so it's left s- sitting in tanks and anaerobic digestion takes place different gases start to form and the danger gas is hydrogen sulphide and at a very low level that'll smell like rotten eggs at a high level you won't be able to smell it. It takes away your whole sense of, of smell. Less than 30 seconds is all it takes from, for hydrogen sulphide to take a life. And it, it actually gets released during the agitation process, which is the mixing process that we would do before we actually spread it on the um, on the uh, grass. Um, I know a man exposed to chicken slurry, actually, and God love him, he's still in a wheelchair. With the He's not able to talk really or walk really because it affects, affects your nervous system, affects mm. your brain. So it's not just death that can happen. People can be left very, very sick and with life altering um, conditions after being exposed to the slurry. So the pit's well uh, mm. what we say? fenced in, yes, absolutely secured, yeah. notices everywhere absolutely. and just a flashpoint yeah. of danger yeah. on any farm. A little child lifted his hand to me um, last week in, in, in a school that, that I, I was in and he told me that his brother, who was only two at the time, had fallen into and drowned in, in a slurry tank. See, that's the other thing I as know. well. So it's, it's very real. It's and the other, real. just relate that, just to touch on it, water holes and rivers, water courses, yeah. storage of water, another similar I think drowning the yeah. the danger there. Here's the other thing that people don't think of. Mm. You know, crops have to be sprayed. Yes. And yes. you must be careful because mm. this is a very scientific we, thing. Yeah. A child gets a bottle of something or takes mm. a sup of something that looks attractive. Oh, lethal. Absolutely. A amount of times I've seen, you know, toxic subs- substance left in, in mineral bo- uh, bottles yes. around the farm. I mean, absolutely not. And we, we use a lot of these pesticides and even the, the, the doses we give our, our, our animals, the medicines, the likes of Ivermec that we, that we use as a pour on, you need to use gloves. That stuff works because it's absorbed into skin. Over time, if that's absorbed into your skin, that's getting into your nervous system. So it's, it's absolutely vital. There's pretty much no... Nowhere on a farm is 100%. You've got to assess the risk in everything that you're going to do on a farm because, you know, you can be drowned, you can be poisoned, you can be trampled, you can be kicked, you can be crushed. We call it our, our, our work and we also call it our, our, our home. Now, you are available, of course. Mm-hmm. It's your business, AgriKids, and congratulations again Thank on you. what you've been doing for, for the last number of years. You go into schools, which is one aspect. So if people are listening today, there's still a term left till summer. Yeah, Can yeah, they contact absolutely. you? Absolutely. Get in touch. Um, Alma at agrikids.ie. I have one or two slots, uh, slots left before not the end many. of summer. No, not many at, at all. I've never advertised these, Jerry. This, this is, is the what interesting always thing. gets I, me. It's oh, bizarre. Yeah, I'm, I'm only it's... back from Kerry. I was in Kerry and Cork and Limerick just last week, and but I am taking bookings now for se- September onwards. And a big thanks to uh, Zurich Insurance who are sponsoring this 100% now. There is mm. no cost for me to go to your school okay. to do, do a you workshop. Hear that? No cost. And I cover the entire school. I do infants up to second class and then third up to sixth six class. And it's not just school events. I mean, tomorrow I'm actually off to Tipperary, and thankfully I'm seeing this much needed collaboration taking place. Um, Chagas, um, the IFA in North Tip, and Gert 
Augustine Agricultural College are running an event in Boris Kane on an actual farm tomorrow and we're looking at everything from tractor simulators for 16 year olds which I'm delighted to see there's going to be fun on the farm activities for the younger chi- children I'm going to be doing the workshop activities there's even going to be a cardiologist on site talking about not just safety but health and well-being for our farmers so the message I think is starting to change but and yes. I'm going to keep slogging away until it changes completely. And I'm always with you all the way because yeah, this is you. something that I'm passionate about and we don't want to see one child. No, absolutely not. That little one boy, more child, that I think I, that little boy this year, lose their lives on a farm. And it's too serious to ignore and not to address. I wish you well. Mention the website again is? Um, it's agrikids.ie. Alma Jordan, pleasure to have you Thank with you, us Jerry. this afternoon and best wishes with your work. Elvis Presley died on August 16th, 1977. That was the answer I was looking for. 1977, I was just looking for the year. Some say he didn't die, but, uh, well, not much been seen of him since, to be honest with you, except if you listen to his music on radio or still watch some of those old movies he made. Anyway, the Ultimate Big Band Show is coming to the TLT in Drogheda, Saturday, 27th of April. Tickets from TLT Box Office and the TLT.ie. It relives the golden hits of the Rat Pack, Elvis Presley, Liberace, etc and a pair of tickets today and late lunch going to Mary Clark well done to you Mary got the right answer and going to that show a week on Saturday we'll be in touch to make the arrangements uh, The Way of the Cross takes place in Drogheda this good Friday uh, this coming Friday at 10am from St Mary's Church in James's Street and all are welcome to take part in carrying the cross uh, what else was I to mention oh yes so sad they're looking for ladies to take part in the VHI Women's Marathon on June 2nd bank holiday June Monday to walk on their behalf. If you're interested, you can let them know and get sponsorship cards from their offices in Drogheda. That's on Magdalene Street, Jocelyn Street, Dundalk, Parnell Street, Carrick Macross, Cannon Row, Navin and Bridge Street in Cavan. They have an extensive network of offices and they're looking for people, ladies, to take part in the marathon on their behalf. And remember, Southside Ireland promotes suicide prevention and awareness and supports those who are bereaved. And they have a 24 emergency support the service is, of course, free of charge. And well done to So Said and continued success to them. Were you watching, Louise? I think you were. Were you watching the moving statues? I was. I was. I was looking at it in pure disbelief and a little bit of... What, what years were they talking about? The 80s, was it? 85. Ash, you wouldn't I, remember it, would you? I do. Do you know what? When it was all going on, I was in primary school and I actually mm. remember the other side of it, that... There were things moving everywhere and a statue of Our Lady, I have a, a vague recollection, somebody saw it move in our school and there were kids terrified. They were crying and everything. Uh, Do you know, that was the other side uh, of it. They were everywhere. Well, I'll tell you, um, Balance Spittle, yeah. it began there, didn't it? People yeah. were heading down the cork in Balance Spittle and then the, the statue started moving everywhere. It was statues of Our Lady, was it? Yeah, they were up in Sligo and everything. Oh God, they were moving everywhere all over. Look, I said this before. If you stare long enough at something, if you stare at a lamppost with a light on it out on the street for long enough, it'll start to sway. You don't need a drink on you, by the way, for this to happen. Cold, stone, sober. Look at anything. Do it tonight. When Look at a lighter. You'll see it starting to move. If you stare at anything long enough, it will move. Do you think? Like I'll you tell do. you something. Weren't we gobshites? Yeah. I was, I was laughing. That the, the pub owners were saying the demand on the toilets were so big from people because there weren't, there weren't any public toilets that they were often trying to unblock the toilets at two or three in the morning. There was nothing moving there. Wouldn't you think the church would just come out and say, well, let's all go home for Christ's sake. And cop yourselves on. But of course they didn't do that. And there was people travelling and all this stuff from all over the country to see it. And 
I have to say, it's another example of the banana republic this country was. And some people would say still is in aspects, including this kooky here. Anyway. But there um, are people, though, that still believe. That like, they moved. Last, yeah. Oh, sure, they're I know. Still they're saying. convinced of it. What had happened today if I went out and I said, oh, she moved. There she is. I was down the church the other night. She gave me a wink. I'd visit you. I'd what? Vis- I'd visit you. Would you? Yeah, I'd be locked <laughs> up. up. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be down to the church. It, it wouldn't happen today. Not a prayer would happen today. Holy God! Do you not think so? Oh I think, no! I think if it did happen, there there would be. I'll tell you a story about a moving statue in my lifetime. I was in St Joseph's CBS Secondary School, and there was a massive statue of the Blessed Virgin at the back of the class. And this day we had a free class. I don't know, one of the teachers just, he was late. And uh, there was partitions between the classes. They, you could open them up into bigger rooms, but we were in whatever class. Anyway, the statue was at the back and we started, you know, messing and the coats were flying round. And next thing, the coat shot up mm-hmm. round the head of the Blessed Virgin and you could see her just giving a wobble. She was up on a little shelf. She was huge. <laughs> Bang, hit the deck. It's- Our Lady in bits all over the floor, in pieces. Mucky Dunn, famous name, came running in from next door. And he was a devout Catholic. Oh, he was just... <laughs> you think we're after killing killing God? We killed God in the school Straight that time. Hell, the oh, we were all held in, held back after school. But you know something? All the lads, I always say to them, we'd have survived in Castlereagh Detention Centre in the north. We never spoke a word. Nobody broke ranks to say who threw the code, who was responsible. I think it was Jerry Clinton who tried to catch the statue. He tried to catch it, nearly killed him. Anyway, it was in bits on the floor. So You're still not saying now. Here's no, we're not saying. No, no, nobody will say. We've held that forever and mm. we will. It'll go to the graves with us. Anyway, we had to pay for a replacement. We all had to get the money and bring it in. This thing cost a fortune. You have to... Re- anyway... The one that fell, I'm sure, was about four foot high. Now, it was a big lump of a, of a virgin statue, honest to God. And we did replace it. She was 18 inches. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't nearly see her on the shelf. <laughs> That's the only statue I saw move in my lifetime. And did it move? Did it move? Okay. Went to pieces, or it did, because of the mess in the There's some great tweets over the internet, though. Um, Is there? Yeah. Well, I read that one about that. Go on. It was a great tweet on the internet about it and it said the mammy was out shopping one day during the moving statue epidemic. Passing a church, a woman she knew came rushing out all at Twitter. She called for her mammy, Lily, Lily, the statue of St. Anthony is moving. Run, shouts the mammy, he's after your purse. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. I love it. I absolutely love it. We are a witty people, though, I will say. Anyway, we're pretty resolute people in a village in County Mead. It's the second year. What am I talking about on Good Friday? Yes, you can go for a drink for the second year after the legislation was changed. Prior to that, you couldn't drink on Good Friday. But in a Mead village, the pubs ain't opening. If you want to stay in the past and remain in the traditional Good Friday sense of things in Ireland. There's only one place to be in this weekend in Ireland. It's the village of Drumconrath in County Mead because they took a stance last year to say they weren't opening despite the change in the legislation. Dermot Muldoon, Pauline Fay and Pat Dempsey are holding the line. There will be no drink served in the village this year on Good Friday again and Dermot Muldoon is on the line. Afternoon Dermot. How's things? How are you keeping today? Very good. Thanks for talking to me. I know you joined me when this hit the the fan last year and we had a good chat about it. The year has gone by and, you know, most pubs opened last Good Friday and even more are going to open the majority this Friday again. Absolutely. Why are you sticking with the tradition of not opening? Well, we know it's a dying trend and all the rest, but still and all, 
we're keeping it going strong, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, for personal and otherwise. Like, um, we, we, as fellas, we work hard enough, you know, for the rest of the year. And um, there's always Saturday, Sunday, and Monday as well of the bank holiday. So apart from that, it's tradition that we, I always done certain things on the day and we're going to keep that alive. Have you been pressured at all by your customers? Pressured at all by the customers? Bit of slagging and that, but not much pressure. No, no, they, they respect their decisions and um, they're standing by us on it. Yeah, yeah. Some of them, some of them do, and some of them don't. And so that's just the way they are, you know. So with the three, they are you are the three pubs in Drumconrad. There won't be a drink sold in the village this year. No, no, no drinks. No. And and will any of your punters go anywhere else for a drink? I'd say the will. Yeah, I'd say the will. There's other, there's other, there's items on on the night locally in other pubs. Uh, yeah. That I'm sure they'll probably attend some of them, but uh, as far as I'm concerned now, I wouldn't think my, many of ours go um, elsewhere, but you never know, you know, it's a long mm. weekend, as I say, you know, there's, there's yeah. other nights they can, they can attend, as the fella says, you know. And do you use the Good Friday, like, some publicans to get a little bit of work done in the place, or what do That's you do? It. That's it, yeah, last year when I was talking to the painter was busy in the hall painting, and, and there was other things going on, and uh, the same again this year, we'll be getting things done in the, in the, in the, in the, on the premises, yeah, you know different things on you wouldn't get done otherwise you know are you a deeply religious man it, it, does religion faith come into this with you absolutely not religion doesn't come into it tradition comes into it the fact that I've always been off good Friday me and my family we've done this we've done that we've done the other and uh, we try and tend keeping it up you know there is only two days in the year isn't there really Christmas Day you, 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 there's no trade on Christmas Day in any pub and, and Good Friday there's only one day now by law which is yeah, Christmas right. Day that's so right. and that's probably going to be under pressure too shortly, maybe. Do you reckon? Oh, I'd say so. I'd say they'll open Christmas Day. Yeah. Me and Pauline and Pat won't guarantee that. <laughs> <laughs> so yourself, Pauline and Pat have stayed firm, the three. Uh, and, and did yeah. you have a chat about this among yourselves again? Two-minute conversation on the phone. All hands up. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not for budging we can't say to you at all oh come on Dermot you've made your mark now two years over maybe maybe next year you know you'll say oh, we'll go with it come on we'll, we'll go with the legislation and we'll no, open no 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 we've, this is for good with you is it we've got our war chest ready for the day we're shot you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll be grand <laughs> And it won't impact on the financial year in Muldoon uh, Incorporated. No, it doesn't. It's not, not at the minute, anyway. You know. <laughs> not at the minute. You know, things can change, but no, at the minute, no. We have to keep up the position, keep the pulse shot. It's Pauline and Pat. Pauline, you're with me now. Yes, yeah, Pauline, with you there. She is indeed. Stick around a second. Nice no. to talk to you, Dermot. Okay, no problem. Thanks a million. Put her on the phone there. How you doing? Pauline, how's the form? Good, good. Yourself and your daughter have traditions on Good Friday. Tell us about them. Are you going to do them again this year, yeah? Very much so, yes. We have had all this year. They're all organised since uh, nearly 10 days ago. And, uh, yeah, just looking forward to it. So you go, you do the stations on Good Friday, do you? I go in and I light a candle. Right. If I, if I, if I never, whenever I get to what I call it, because what we do is uh, a full, a compact day, Wherever wherever we're passing through, mm. we we go in around three o'clock and we and we light a candle or whatever, you know. Yeah. So you will make a point of visiting a church on the day on Good Friday to mark oh, the yeah. day. Yeah. 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 So yeah. obviously, Pauline, with yourself, faith does play a little part in what you do. Is that is that in your thinking? You know, in staying closed on Good Friday. Well, I mean, yes, 
a little bit of both. Mm. A little bit more, more so to spend with the time with the children. Yeah. Because, look, you're working every other day, every other day of the year. Mm. And for Christmas, you don't even see yourself, never mind the children, Christmas, <laughs> around Christmas. You know, so yes. it's just, a, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't exist Christmas Day. Mm. But, uh, uh, no, it's so relaxing. So relaxing all over Easter. You're coming up to Easter, it's a lovely time of the year, and then. Uh, Yes, of course you have. When Friday finishes, you're into a very busy Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Your customers, just to come back to that, a moment ago Dermot said, bit of slag, a bit of crack with the customers. Anyone ask you the question this year? Come on, Pauline, is it time? I'll tell you, yes, no problem. Uh, respected, respected my decision. And as they said, and a lot, quite, quite a few of them said, a little bit of religion done, not one of us, any bit of harm. Yes. And I have to say, they can do as they said, you know, like you're running the pub on their own. And what What about it? Do, yeah. Do you know, like, if you're, well, sure, every one of us can do without drink for one day. Mm. Do no bad, do no harm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Interesting, yeah. isn't it? You have such support, both of you. And I'm sure, uh, as well with Pat, it's, he's in the same boat, getting the same feedback from people. I think so. I think so. And it's, mm. uh, I think it's a good, I think it's a, it's a very positive uh, feedback that I'm getting. And as Dermot, yeah. The same, yeah. But um, yes, it would be a little bit of a slagging here and there, and that. But um, oh, I can slag them back. You see, <laughs> no better woman, especially the Mayo lads. <laughs> 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 no better woman, Pauline. Well, listen, look, we leave it there today. Fair juicy. I respect you all there, and well done again. You're sticking to your principles, and enjoy your Good Friday in Drum Conrad. Thank you very much. Sir. Not at all. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. That was Dermot Muldoon and Pauline Fay, and the other publican in Drum Conrad is Pat Dempsey, and they are not opening on Good Friday. You heard it there, and uh, no way, and uh, they seem to be uh, stuck on this, no matter what comes or goes for the years ahead as well. It won't be happening there. There you have it. Anyway, the law is change and change in the majority of places will be open on this Good Friday. That's our lot on Late Lunch for this Tuesday afternoon. Thank you so much for your company on the show today. And thank you to all my guests who joined me. Very interesting people again this afternoon on your Late Lunch. We'll be back tomorrow midweek Wednesday with another show for you. And we'll leave you with Miss Aretha Franklin. And all you have to say about the uh, Publicans, the publicans in uh, Drum Conrad is you'd have to respect them, wouldn't you? Yes, it's respect from Aretha finishing late lunch this Tuesday. MFM Podcasts. Brought to you with Cark McCross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cark McCross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cark McCross or CarkMcCrossCU.ie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.